Welcome to our first, uh, hopefully in a series of uh, interviews and discussions with distinguished uh, neuroscientists held at the Department of Neurobiology at UTSA. And today uh, with us uh, are several members of the Faculty of Neurobiology and a distinguished uh, speaker, uh, starting with, uh, with us local folks. Uh, me, I'm Charles Wilson, uh, Todd Troyer. So I've just arrived here, and uh, this is a new experiment that I'm looking forward to. Salma Parashi. Hi, I'll be manning the helm hopefully next week. See you guys then. Carlos Paladini. Uh, hello, I'm also new here, and um, uh, looking forward to this weekly podcast. Gary Galfall. Yeah, I'm also a new assistant professor in uh, biology. So everybody here, I, some kind of uh, doctor of something or other, and I um, forgive me if I don't uh, say that all the time. I will just say that about our distinguished visitor, Dr. Uh, James Tepper, who is professor at the Center for Molecular and Behavioral Neuroscience and Rutgers University uh, in Newark and, uh, and an expert on uh, many things having to do with the basal ganglia, but also other stuff, which uh, looking over his CV today, I found all kinds of hidden uh, jewels uh, and, and interesting things to talk about. But before we get started, I thought um, it would be great if we could say something about, hear something about, um, the biggest news uh, recently, which is the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine, uh, one for work on uh, gene targeting. And we're lucky because Gary Galfo has uh, been engaged in this kind of work and knows something about it. And so, Gary, how about telling us what the Nobel Prize was given for and what the importance of the gene targeting method is? Sure. So the... Uh the prize was given to three investigators, Oliver Smithies at uh, the University of North Carolina, um, Martin at, um, at, uh, at the University of Cambridge, I think now he's in another university, and Mario Capecchi at the University of Utah. So they independently uh, contributed to different aspects of gene targeting. Um, uh, Martin um, contributed the isolation of embryonic stem cells, which is critical to uh, generating um, transgenic or knockout mice. And the other two, Kopecki, who might work for at the University of Utah, and Smithies independently um, discovered how you can introduce mutations in a gene and introduce that into the embryonic stem cells. So together, um, they shared the Nobel Prize. So what gene targeting is, is that uh, essentially you can replace any gene in the genome with something that you manipulated in vitro. Okay, you do that in embryonic stem cells and you transfer the, uh, the manipulated embryonic stem cells into foster mothers and subsequently you, you generate a knockout mouse. And how that's impacted biology is that uh, uh, prior to this, uh, there really wasn't a, a clear and defined way to study gene function. But with gene targeting, you can uh, specifically design uh, a mutation, add uh, a fluorescent protein, modify any gene that you want. And since uh, 
the discovery of this um, this technique over, um, I believe, 10,000 genes have been knocked out. There are about 20 to 30,000 genes in the rodent genome. 500 of those are related to uh, uh, diseases, so it's impacted clinical science. And there's now a international um, group, and their objective is to knock out every single gene in the genome, and so that uh, all of uh, scientists can have access to these mice. So you can study any gene of your choice. Okay, so there will be a worldwide uh, data bank. Okay, so and these are not conditional knockouts. These are knockouts from the get-go, so that a lot of them will be lethal. A lot of them will be lethal. So more recently, uh, Klaus uh, Ryuski, who is now at Harvard, developed the conditional, which is a modification of uh, a traditional knockout. So a conditional knockout, essentially, um, you can modify the gene, but it's not knocked out, but, but you've mo modified it in a way so that you can knock it out anywhere at any time. Okay. So the, uh, the international group, is that is also one of their objectives, is to create conditional uh, mice. Right. How long does it take from the time that you decide what, maybe you isolated the gene that you want to knock out until you have a working knockout that you can use. It used to take, if you're good, it used to take anywhere from, uh, you know, um, 8 to 12 months. But uh, recently, um, Mario had this spectacular graduate student who I worked with when I was a postdoc, um, Sen Wu. He's developed a, a much faster method of knocking out genes. So, um, in vitro, it could take you anywhere from 6 months to a year, just to make your targeting construct. He can make it in two weeks now, right? So you can essentially have a knockout mouse within four to six months, right? Is this library of knockouts, are they going to be available commercially, or is it just going to be sort of a loan-out sort of situation? It seems to be... Yeah, sort of so I think there, there are two interest groups, right? The academic group, which will uh, essentially charge you just for the cost of, of generating it, right? Uh, there's a Bay Area group in, in uh, San Francisco, I, I believe UC Davis. Um, they have some knockouts, and it's provided to investigators for a nominal fee. And then there's Regeneron, which is a biotechnology company in other companies, and they'll charge you essentially a nominal leg, like 20 grand, 30 grand, or whatever. So their business is in trouble if once the whole group of them are put together, or they of course, only that's only one arm. Yeah, sell shares right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So how, how do you, uh, can you do any conditional things once you got it set up and you can put any kind of condition that you want? On yeah, and, yeah. So that's easy. That, that part of it is kind of post-processing. Yeah, right now it's become such routine that it's it's no longer, uh, I guess the common scientists can, can now do this. Right? Whereas before it was just just a handful of laboratories that can perform this technique. So how is it different from um, the, the technique whereby you can knock out genes in specific populations of cells? Okay, so that, that would involve, again, this, uh, this uh, novel technique, conditional um, mutations, and that requires a, a two-genetic system, the, the Cree recombinase system, which will, the Cree recombinase is an enzyme that will recognize your modified gene and excise the coding region. Okay, so let's say your gene is expressed all throughout the brain, and you want to knock out the gene, this particular gene that's only in the substantia nigra, 
right? If you do a traditional knockout, this gene is knocked out all throughout the CNS, but if you couple it with a conditional and the Cree recombinase that's expressed specifically in tyrosine hydroxylase cells, for example, it'll knock it out only in those tyrosine hydroxylase expressing cells in the substantia nigra. But tyrosine hydroxylase is expressed in other areas, so you may need a more specific Cree expressing gene. Is that so? It's kind of like an intersection of uh, of two genetic systems. When was the the gene targeting work for which the prize was awarded basically finished? Uh, 1989 was the the first uh, um, publication. It was a, a Nature publication that was uh, Thomas Mansour and Kapeki. Um, there was kind of a, a fight between Ben Lewin in Cell and Nature. Um, uh, Benjamin Lewin was uh, the editor at the time at Cell. He wanted more data from Mario, but Mario wanted to publish it, so he opted for uh, the Nature publication. And then the sort of finishing touches were put on the, on the you know, I'm just thinking about the package that wins a Nobel Prize. Oh, okay. There must have been a, a moment when that Nobel Prize winning work was complete. Right. And I was just wondering. Yeah, so that. I would say that the completion is, uh, you know, the uh, doing everything in vitro, like modifying the gene and testing it in, in cell lines occur, occurred in the early 80s and the isolation of the embryonic stem cell in the early 80s. But pack, packaging it together to develop the knockout mouse occurred in the 1989 publication. So this work is... Uh, uh, a manifestation of things that were done 20 years ago. Right. So what did they knock off yeah, first? Yes, it was. It was, uh, it was called WINT1, wingless. And uh, the gene is expressed specifically in the dorsal neural tube. And its greatest effect was in the developing um, midbrain, hindbrain region from which the cerebellum develops. So these mice lack a cerebellum. In fact, those that did survive had this, um, uh, this shaking phenotype. So wingless was the least of their worries. What's that? Yes, yes. Yeah, it didn't so, right. so, so it was uh, the gene was first identified in Drosophila. It's called wingless, and then they found the uh, the, the homologous gene in, in mammals and kept the name. Yeah, because I, I haven't seen many mice with wings. Right, right. Wingless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have that gene. So yeah, that so. Well, I was just thinking about the latency to the Nobel Prize because, yeah, yeah you never know. Um, I was just thinking if some of Depp's work was going to win the Nobel Prize and when it would happen, if there's a 10-year delay or something like that, some of it might be entering the window right now. I don't think there's any danger of that. Ask <laughs> the window by now. If you did something a few years ago, you could, you could win it, right? Because exactly. the guys who discovered RNAi, that was in uh, the late 90s, early 2000, and they received the Nobel Prize last year. So if your work impacts, you know, all it's of biology. It's a very latency. Yeah. Uh, well, I was just thinking about which of these uh, famous works by uh, Tepper I would nominate if I was nominating something for the Nobel Prize and uh, but then I didn't want to go too far back because if it's too old it's already past the window but a lot of uh, the theme of it has been about the role of interneurons in the 
basal ganglia and just identifying the different kinds of interneurons in the basal ganglia and uh, identifying what each one's transmitter is and its position in the circuit and that sort of thing. And uh, uh, this has been a great and recurring theme in neuroscience. People have been interested in working out the local circuit neurons role in the spinal cord since the time of Sherrington. And there's been a, a revolution, it seems to me, a, a revolution in thinking about local uh, GABAergic interneurons in the forebrain because of the discovery that they're all basically siblings, that they're born in the same place together and they all, uh, and not in the same place as the projection neurons, they then migrate into the cortex and the uh, striatum and amygdala from, uh, from a different part of the developing brain. And then the, their positions in the circuits are all sort of analogous. So you can find a neuron in the striatum that is, or in the hippocampus, that looks like and acts like and probably functions like its cousin in the cerebral cortex. So there's a sort of developing unified view of interneurons in these different circuits that are performing really, really different functions. So uh, one of the pioneers in this field is Tep because of his uh, work on identifying interneurons in the striatum, but also uh, using similar techniques to study neurons elsewhere in the basal ganglia. So what do you think, uh, Tep? Do you think that that pargovimum neuron in the striatum is performing the same computational function in the circuit as a pargovimum neuron in the cortex or hippocampus? Oh, I don't know. Probably not, because the cortex and the striatum essentially don't do the same sort of computational functions themselves. And so even if the inner neurons are phenotypically similar in the way they fire and in their electrophysiological properties, uh, they're going to have different roles in the two structures because the computational properties of the two structures are completely different. The cortex is modular and striatum is not. And there is uh, a whole bunch of uh, feed-forward excitation in cortex and not any feed-forward excitation or intrinsic feed-forward excitation in the striatum. And um, so I think, I think probably they're different. I think that the neurons work the same way, but they are, they're doing a different thing. So the idea is that, like, it, um, you know, in neural networks, people like to look for principles. So they'd say, well, feedback inhibition performs a normalizing function, or that's, you know, make some kind of global statement like that. You think that's a, I think that's a big shift from viewing the brain in the Sherrington way, in which everything seemed to have been wired together in a very precise way by some uh, very clever electrical engineer who wanted to get a particular output, versus the neural network self organizing system kind of view in which things have, are specified very little and they just sort of work out their own uh, connectivity over time. And in those, so I, are you, uh, are you sticking with Sherrington? That's your story and you're sticking to it. <laughs> no, I don't know. I think, you know, the interneurons clearly have different, play different roles and have different functions where, where they are. Um, whether or not a, a GABAergic cell 
whether or not a GABAergic cell is an interneuron or not uh, is, in some sense, a function of its anatomy. If it projects out of out of the nucleus where its cell body resides, we don't call it an interneuron. We call it a projection neuron, even if it has local axon collaterals that perform the function in the in the in the structure of origin that would be like the function of a, of an interneuron. Um, I mean, an example of that is that in the striatum, um, one kind of GABAergic interneuron has a cal retinin in it, and another kind of interneuron has another calcium binding protein, pardalbumin. And in the substantia nigra, um, where people talk about interneurons all the time, um, one kind of neuron in the substantia nigra reticulata has parvalbumin, and one kind of neuron has calretinin. But the neurons in the substantia nigra aren't interneurons at all. They're projection neurons that project to the thalamus and elsewhere. Um, yet these neurons do have local axon collaterals that perform many of the same kind of feed-forward inhibitory functions that um, the interneurons do in striatum. So you know, whether something is an interneuron or not uh, may be actually sort of the wrong question. Maybe we ought to be asking what is the function of a given neuron in a given circuit. So you're saying an interneuron is a matter of semantics, then? Yeah, I'm saying, you know, as as you know, as you know, I have been sort of trying valiantly to find the nigral interneuron for a long time. It's been reported from a lot of different kinds of physiological studies, and its existence has been inferred indirectly based on some anatomical studies, but mostly on electrophysiological studies, and and, and so in that recent um, JCN paper, um, the, the JCN paper was a failure because its function was actually to try to really to, was was actually to try to find the interneuron, find a neuron that was a GABAergic neuron in substantia nigra that was somehow different than the other neurons. And so I knew that there were, we knew that there were two populations of peptide-containing GABAergic neurons, but we weren't weren't sure where they projected, if they projected to different places, and we weren't sure if their electrophysiological properties were the same or not, and we weren't sure about their morphology, and we were hoping that if we looked carefully enough at their physiology or their projection pattern or their dendritic arborization or their axonal arborization, we would, could find some distinguishing feature, and everything failed to distinguish anything. And so... Of all the neurons we were able to record in substantia nigra, which was some large number of neurons in, in the visualized slice, we could we failed to find anything but a unimodal population that was distinguished only by um, what calcium binding protein it contained, but not by its its physiology or anything else. It sort of raises the question of the utility of these cellular markers. We've placed a lot of stock in distinguishing cells cytochemically according to some set of marker molecules, often there are molecules whose function really wasn't known. But we were happy to see that there are like three, supposed to be three kinds of neurons in some place, and we see that there are these three markers that, sing, that distinguish between them. And uh, maybe this uh, approach, its limitations are starting to become clear in a project like the one that you did, where we'd see 
barbalumin neurons and calretinin neurons are indistinguishable, except that some have barbalumin and some have calretinin. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of the... Uh, it's like the fMRI story. Does, does fMRI... Does an increase in fMRI activity indicate an increase in neuronal activity? Well, in some places it does, and in those places you can use it as an index of neuronal activity. But in other places, it doesn't correlate at all. And in those places, you can't use it as an index of neuronal activity, but you don't know until you look. And so um, <laughs> it's not meant to be funny. It's, I mean, I'm, it's, it's, it's serious. And so parvalbumin, uh, to, to identify GABAergic neurons, um, one could just stain for the synthetic enzyme glutamic acid decarboxylase, GAD, G-A-D, but staining for GAD is more difficult than immunostaining for some things. Um, some things are easy to immunostain. Some things are hard. Parvalbumin is easy to immunostain. And so a lot of people, when they want to look for, um, for GABAergic neurons, immunostain in some places for parvalbumin. And that works in some places, but it doesn't necessarily work everywhere. And but that's not as disturbing as discovering that parvalbumin's presence in the cell doesn't mean anything at all. Isn't it, it isn't a part of a constellation of, uh, of features in the cell. So at least for me, uh, it's said by a physiologist, right? Yeah. So it's like all what we're assuming at the bottom line is the physiological properties of the cell, and that's what the cell does, and that's what is important. And so those those categories are fine, and they don't go along with the, the calcium binding proteins or whatever. But maybe that's not primary for something else. I think the, the main, it's not just the problem of what's the primary function of the cell, but the fact that if you make an assumption that you have three electrophysiological types of cells and you have three um, calcium binding types of cells and people automatically make the assumption that those three populations, depending on how you measure them, um, perfectly overlap. Yeah. Such that always a parvalbumin cell is always a fast spiking interneuron. Always a calretinin cell is always an LTS neuron. But it may be that there's no such overlap. Maybe um, fast spiking interneurons, some of them are parvalbumin, some of them are, are calretinin. And when you um, label a cell with parvalbumin, that does not necessarily mean you have a fast spiking interneuron. Maybe some LTS neurons have parvalbumin. And that's, that's, where, this, that's where the problem comes. It's not that. The, the 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 labeling of the cell is more important than the electrophysiological characteristics or vice versa. It's just that basic assumption that they mean the same thing. Now, also, what I what I'd like to add is a lot of things that uh, you know most people look at are very static. Immunohistochemistry. There's a lot of plasticity. You know, I'm coming at it from a developmental standpoint of view, where gene expression, protein markers, are fleeting, and some can be sustained. You know, at this one moment in time, a neuron can be, you know, parvalbumin positive. In another physiological context, you may downregulate parvalbumin, and it can become something else. I think that's very, it's perfectly germane to this conversation. So, the the um, material I talked about today with respect to those tyrosine hydroxylase expressing neurons in striatum, which are also GABAergic neurons. Um, we have not done the experiments yet. We're in the process of doing it. But I am fairly certain that 
the large increase in number. They, they increase in number by in abundance by six times or ten times in animals in which dopamine has been depleted. I don't think that means that there are uh, that there's neurogenesis of these tyrosine hydroxylase expressing neurons. I'm almost certain that what's got to be happening is that a neuron that previously did not express tyrosine hydroxylase, tyrosine hydroxylase uh, expression has now been induced for some reason. And I think it can probably be deinduced as well. So I think right. you know, right. you're, you're made, and that's an interesting question about whether these markers are stable. When we talk about um, expression, we talk about two different kinds of projection neurons in striatum: one that contains substance P, and one that contains enkephalin. Enkephalin one, uh, enkephalin expressing one also expresses D two receptors, and the substance P expressing one expresses D one receptors, and there's uh, been considerable controversy in the literature as to the extent of co-expression, co-localization of, of dopamine D1 and D2 type markers and enkephalin and substance P markers. And I think the evidence is pretty strong now that if you use animals that are old enough, the incidence of co-localization drops to a very consistent, reproducible, and reasonable level of, say, 5% of the cells or 10% of the cells. But that if you use neonatal animals that are 15 days old, then you find 25 or 30 or 40% uh, overlap. This still brings up, to me anyway, the issue of what is a cell class. So if we're, in the, if we're talking about the nervous system in the way Cajal talked about it, in which you say they're two kinds of projection neurons in the striatum, the direct and indirect pathway neurons, you can tell them by their axonal arborizations and by cytochemical markers. There's a sort of in, implicit idea that gene expression is organized into a constellation of things. So that if you get this, you get that, and you get that, and you get that, and that constellation defines the cell type. And cells that are expressing those things are a particular cell type. Now, maybe they could switch and go off and become another cell type. But if gene expression isn't organized into, uh, in, into these little uh, uh, correlated groups in which uh, expression of this gene is, is correlated with that one, then we wouldn't get cell types in the, in the Sherrington and Cajal sense. And we still believe that there are cell types that we can identify in the brain. In vertebrates, there, uh, you know, a single cell can be the only instance of a particular type. And in those cases, there, there is coordinated expression of genes that creates that cell type. So the mechanism that does that uh, coordination is the cell type creation mechanism, and it is an embryological thing. We know that because partly because of interneurons. The, the, the GABAergic interneurons that we're talking about in the striatum aren't born in this place where the projection neurons are born. They're born in the place where GABAergic cells in the cortex are born. And Gary, maybe you would fill us in on that, on the new stuff about the origin. All right. So um, I guess I don't know the, the history long enough, but more recently using uh, retroviral uh, labeling and dye-I labeling, they found that a significant parts of, uh, of interneurons in the cortex actually arise from regions where the basal ganglia will develop the, the, the medial geniculate eminence. Right? That's where that 
Globus pallidus comes from. Globus pallidus. And so there's a massive migration of interneurons from that region into the cerebral cortex. And people will hypothesize that those neurons that migrate from this region will ultimately be interrelated with the, the circuit that's involved with the globus pallidus. And what I wanted to ask you is, is there any evidence that perhaps some interneurons from that region migrate to the midbrain or substantia nigra? Clearly, it's not that, that it's not as far away as it is from the cortex. So the, the logistics of migration is, is relatively easy. And so those interneurons that are now in the midbrain may be functionally related to its source of origin. But that hasn't been studied. But the yeah, other I, I don't know the answer to that question, and I don't, and I don't, I'm not certain that there are interneurons in the midbrain. Maybe there are. I'm just going to ask that question. Are there? Is there a, a, a gradient of interneurons as we go from telencephalon down to the spinal cord? I don't know, but if you're talking about parvalvulin-positive GABAergic fast spiking cells, the globus pallidus that's, that arises from the medial ganglionic eminence is absolutely totally loaded with them. And the striatum and the cortex that arise from the pallium and from the lateral ganglionic eminence, those structures have relatively few. And uh, so I, I, I don't see that... So you're calling parvalium and cells interneurons? Now. Well, I don't know. It's, it depends on uh, on how you define it. If you, How do you want to define it? Yes. Uh, but I'm kind of interested in the idea that the this sort of constellation of gene expression is defining cell types that have properties in common. Right, even if other properties so, that are normally even if the axons goes along. That's right. And then, so <laughs> by that definition, you could, one you could consider that the, that, that, for that, that, the, that many of the palatal neurons are actually interneurons, even though they have gigantic axons. Well, or whatever you want to call them, fast spiking GABAergic cells that contain Maybe part of it. Yeah. Better to think about it that way than it is to worry about. The definition of interneuron, which varies in different places, uh-huh. is, a, is a cortical parental cell that projects from, uh, from you know, area two to area three. Is that an interneuron, uh, or does it have to go to the brainstem to be right. interneuron? I don't know. I, I don't know. Certainly, stellate cells, spiny stellate cells, are interneurons, but their function is nothing like the parvalvulin cells, and they're born in the regular line lineage of the pyramidal cells. I, I think, you know, the, the modern molecular genetic studies, studies agree with your, your hypothesis in that, uh, you know, uh, cells uh, form from common progenitors. So you don't have random distribution throughout the neural tube. They, they form as distinct, uh, essentially, longitudinal columns uh, along the AP axis. And then from these columns, you'll have um, capergic neurons or... Uh, glutamatergic or dopaminergic. And then later on during development, you have this massive migration. So in the adult, when we study these things, we have um, these cells that are dispersed all throughout, and it's really hard to make any sense of it. But if you step back in development, if you can, you can retract and you can see these cells actually originating from a common source, having a common genetic network. But it's only in the adult that it becomes very confusing. No wonder we've been confused all this time. Looking at adults, <laughs> we've been looking at adults. So look at it the other way and, and forward. So another thing I wanted to bring up before we quit is this: uh, the, the fields, the entire field of neurobiology's obsession with dopamine. 
uh, dopamine it was uh, neurons as a group were discovered and recognized as dopaminergic in the early 1960s using the Falk-Pillark method. Is that, That's right. is that not right? And then their projections were known, and, and for some reason, dopamine neurons captured the imagination of neuroscientists everywhere. I bet you there's... Uh, there must be a hundred times more papers on the dopaminergic cells of the substantia nigra than there are the GABAergic cells in the substantia nigra. Would you say? Absolutely. That right? Yeah, that's right. So why is it? What's the attraction of dopamine? Well, for me personally, I, it's my favorite transmitter. Um, <laughs> uh, it is hard to imagine. Um, it's, it's hard to imagine an, another nucleus of, of neurons or another collection of, of neurons anywhere in the brain that has such a varied and significant impact on so many different aspects of behavior. So the dopamine neurons are involved in one way or another with um, schizophrenia, the most insidious, bizarre, and devastating mental illness that there is. And the dopaminergic neurons are substrates for the Sites are, are the sites of action, substrates for the action of amphetamine and cocaine, uh, which are important drugs of abuse. And the substantia nigra dopamine cells are the cells that degenerate and die in Parkinson's disease. And the dopaminergic cells are the neurons that respond to um, reward or prediction of reward in a certain way. And it's hard to imagine. I mean, there are very, very few, relative, relatively few dopaminergic neurons. In a rodent, there are only there are fewer than 10,000 per side. And in a human, there are fewer than uh, half a million per side. And these, these, this small population of neurons is somehow involved in all of this stuff and more. Uh, and so it's easy to see that, you know, if you're interested at all in human behavior or disease or neurology or psychiatry uh, that you would be interested in these neurons. Isn't it ironic that then that efforts to figure out what dopamine did as a transmitter were so unsuccessful in the beginning? So people started out by spritzing dopamine onto neurons in the striatum that everybody knew received dopamine inputs. And sometimes they'd see cells speed up. Sometimes they'd see them slow down and they... People who saw them sped up would argue with the people who saw them slow down. And then more and more careful work led to the conclusion that the, both the speed up and the slow down were somehow missing the point. The dopamine basically was neither excitatory nor inhibitory, and that there was no dopamine synaptic potential, generated synaptic potentials at all. And at the, and at the time that the physiological effects of dopamine were evaporating, and it seemed to be non-existent, the behavioral effects of dopamine were proliferating and being discovered to be more and more varied. And uh, so what was, you were working on dopamine at that time. What was your reaction to that? I mean, to me, it seemed like, uh, you know, run for cover. Yeah, so you were, you also were working on, on dopamine uh, even before I was, since you're older than I am. <clears throat> but, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, you know, as so, so Charlie, you know, as Charlie well knows, the, the answer, the answer to this is that we know that in most parts of the brain, dopamine is not a 
a, a real card-carrying neurotransmitter. It's something called a neuromodulator. So it doesn't open or close any ionic gates directly, but instead it acts in a myriad of ways uh, to modify the response of a lot of different voltage-gated channels to, uh, to changes in membrane potential. And that's why you don't see an EPSP or an IPSP with dopamine. So my response, anyway, uh, at the time when you s they said the electrophysiological effects were evaporating uh, was one of panic and was instead, I, I, I gave up and said, instead of trying to figure out um, what dopamine is doing, I'm going to try to figure out how the dopamine neuron is working because it seemed to be a much more tractable problem. They're just asking the question in the wrong way, you think? Uh, people trying to look for a synaptic response to dopamine when um, you can get at the function of a dopamine neuron by other methods, such as behavioral methods? I thought that um, if I was in, I, because, I, I thought that because I, I am interested in, was and am interested in how amphetamine works and how cocaine works and how antipsychotic drugs work and all that stuff that I just listed before, um, if I couldn't figure out the postsynaptic mechanism of action of dopamine right now, uh, I'm not going to think about that today. I'll think about that tomorrow. Instead, today, I will think about the neuron itself and what are the what are the, the um, factors that control the activity of the dopamine neuron? So maybe it isn't the very, very best, most interesting aspect of the dopamine story to work on, but it's one that I, could, I knew I could work on, and so I did. Brings up the issue of scientific strategy. Some people uh, focus on some problem and bang away at it, regardless of how difficult it is or how frustrating it may be for a while, because it's a fundamental problem and it has to be solved, and you think, I don't care how rough things get, I'm going to solve that. Maybe, uh, you know, figuring out the structure of hemoglobin was something like that, where it was just hard, and you had to use crystallography, the techniques weren't really present, but hardworking people continued it until it was done. The other approach is that is a little bit more opportunistic, looking for soluble problems and uh, which uh, it sounds like you're you're in favor of looking at where the light is shining a little bit not just kill yourself over a problem that's important but <laughs> well in this particular case that's right but I think that, that I mean that's also a reasonable strategy for a lot of things if you can't um, uh, if you're doing some sort of uh, this is really teaching your grandmother to suck eggs. If you're doing some kind of computational modeling and you find yourself with something that has no numerical solution, um, you could uh, you could give up and you know work on a different problem, or instead you could make some sort of simplification that required you not to. Where you didn't have to make that numerical solution anymore, uh, but you could, but it required a numerical solution that you could perform, and so then you use that, you take that strategy. So I think it's the same. It's it's a similar thing. It's not that I gave up entirely on trying to figure out what's the big deal with dopamine, why are dopamine neurons so important, and how did they do what they do. Um, it was just shifting my emphasis a little bit. But if I had known, you know, all of us, you too, of course, if we had known in, 19, in 1980 
that not to expect an EPSP or an IPSP from dopamine, but that it was a modulator, we would have just started right away with the techniques that we had then to look at dopamine's effects on other things. Uh, we just didn't, we were unaware at the time about the concept of, of um, synaptically released uh, neuronally active chemicals that didn't that didn't act like classical neurotransmitters. Yeah, I think the key was the development of methods for studying voltage-sensitive ion channels because we, in 1980, looking in the cells we were working we on... We couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. We couldn't do voltage yeah. clamp of sodium channels and ask whether dopamine right. was changing the inactivation right. voltage sensitivity. And so we could have seen some threshold shift. It would have just been magic. We wouldn't have known what in the world that meant or how to interpret it or something like that. So I think it, it, it is a important to to uh, sometimes to wait on some really important questions and wait until it's, uh, it becomes soluble. So, so you got, it sounds like you guys were uh, you know, the early stages of studying dopamine. How did, and, and you mentioned there were investigators who found different effects of dopamine. How was the field impacted when they discovered that there were multiple receptors for dopamine? You know, and when did that happen? Uh, 19, 19, in, in, the, in, the, in the mid-70s, certainly, but the, I think the two, you know, there, there, we, there were known to be two different kinds of dopamine receptors, um, one of which uh, activated adenylate cyclase and one of which didn't. It turns out the one of which... The one class activates adenylate cyclase, one that suppresses adenylate cyclase. But I think it was 1979 in that Kababian and Callan paper or something that was probably the first sort of concrete uh, demonstration of that. But it was not until your field uh, was applied to, um, to dopamine neurobiology in the, uh, in the I guess, the mid the mid-1990s that we actually realized how many dopamine receptors there were. Because then we realized that you could pull out clones, and we didn't, you didn't pull out two clones. You pulled out five different clones for dopamine receptors that were structurally very dissimilar. Uh, in fact, one of them, there was post-translational modification, so there were actually six dopamine receptors. Uh, and I think the, I think the, the response was... Whoosh, because all of a sudden we had an excuse for why we had done such a horrible job on, I mean, we we're supposed to be professionals at this, and we couldn't agree on anything, and it turned out that it depended on how you did the experiment, and when you did the experiment, and where you did the experiment. What cell type you What cell type, and not only that, what, what condition, what particular condition that cell type was in in terms of uh, membrane potential or in terms of internal biochemistry or in terms of external milieu, that, that affected you. But, but you mentioned uh, earlier that uh, um, you study the dopaminergic neuron, uh-huh. right? So did, that, did those findings uh, change your, your approach in any way? Because again, you're, as you mentioned, I think that's what you said. That yeah, you like actually study? for that line of work, Discovering that there are a bunch of receptors is 
interesting, but doesn't have immediate consequences until you have specific antagonists. So the development of specific antagonists for D1 and D2 receptors would produce a really positive response from everybody, because now that becomes a tool, and you can just start. It's obvious what you need to do. Let's just get to work doing it. But in the, in the meantime, from the time that you recognize there's more than one kind of receptor until the time that you have something that you can do with that fact, there's a a sort of aimlessness that sets in, I think, and it's hard yeah. to know um, what you're going to use that new information for. It could be worse than not knowing. And we have, you know, and we're still faced today, we're still faced with a problem, right? The problem is that we know, so we, there are these two classes, two genetic families of dopamine receptors, the D1 and D5, or D1A and D1B, and D2, D3, and D4. And although we have drugs that discriminate quite nicely between the D1 family and the D2 family, we don't have drugs that discriminate between D1 and D5 or between D2, D3, and D4, even though a lot of pharmacologists say that we do, um, the drugs, and, the, and under certain in vitro conditions, a very high stringency where you can, you know, control um, binding with... <laughs> changing uh, guanine nucleotides and stuff like that, and you can show small KD differences. We don't have any usable drugs uh, in an in vivo type situation where we can tell the difference between D2, D3, and D4 effects, and that is probably really, really important, and D1 and D5 Maybe conditional effects. knockouts will become the, the pharmacology of choice for mm. this kind of stuff. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. So, so can you, pharmacologically, do you give it systemically, or could you administer it? In the, in the cell. Because we, we talked about, you know, using conditionals, but you can also apply, like, uh, other techniques like morpholinas or RNAi where you can actually transiently disrupt these uh, various subsets of dopaminergic neurons. And, of course, people are doing that. Are they doing yeah, that? Yeah, I'm not yeah. And then that essentially just washes away. It's like a pharmacological agent, right? Yeah, that's very powerful. I, I imagine that uh, we're going to see a lot of that being done instead of waiting for the for the specific antagonist. Yeah. So the RNAi is like is the is the is what we all hoped the antisense oligonucleotides were going to do. Except the RNAi works much 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 better. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's going to be a very valuable. Tech did some important work on the antisense RNA uh, yeah. method when that was getting started. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. Um, I think we got it wrong somehow. So, I mean, there isn't supposed to be a way. So we designed these antisense oligos that were, um, I believe they were uh, 18 base pairs long or something like that. And we wanted to t- we wanted to knock out, we wanted to be able to selectively knock down, I say knock down because you can't get rid of all of it, uh, messenger RNA for D2 or D3 so we could separate D2 and D3 effects. Uh, and we got what looked like um, selective effects, selective knockdown D2 or D3 um, based on binding studies. Um, but, of course, the binding studies themselves were based on the assumption that the ligands that we were using, there were the, con- the binding conditions, we were using drugs that were selective for D2 or D3, and that, that might not have been right. Anyway... Um, uh, there was a result in that paper that suggested that the D3 receptor on the, existed on the dopamine neuron 
and it does. We can see that they do have D3 message. We know that they do. But we have got funny physiology results that suggest that the D3 receptor did something very much like the D2 receptor, which was to open up a potassium channel conductance. Uh, and then a couple of years later, the first uh, D3 receptor knockouts um, became available, and the D3 receptor knockouts did not look like our D3 uh, antisensitizers. And in fact, the D3 receptor knockouts looked like you could knock out the D3 receptor and you didn't do anything to the response of the dopamine neuron to dopamine. So I apologize. So the D3, your, your antisense, showed the reverse effect? No. The, 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 uh, what happened was the antisense oligos to D2 reduced the sensitivity of the neuron. Dopamine neurons are, have receptors for dopamine on them. Uh, both D2 and D3 receptors, and the, and the receptors inhibit the neuron. Uh, uh, so the, it, that D2 antisense makes the dopamine neuron show a smaller inhibitory response to dopamine agonists. And the D3 antisense also made the dopamine neuron have a reduced sensitivity to dopamine. And the simultaneous treatment with both D2 and D3 antisense oligos had a, a basically a a perfectly additive effect, and under those conditions, basically dopamine uh, no longer did anything to the to the dopamine neuron. Um, and so we assumed that the dopamine D3 receptor was going to open a potassium channel, just like the dopamine D2 receptor was going to be coupled the same way. And in some um, uh, cells, for example, in human... I don't remember which kind of human cell, but there's some kind of human cell or a human cell line. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a human cell line. Um, is this is exactly true? And the dopamine D3 receptor is linked to a potassium channel conductance increase. So we thought everything was fine until these the knockout mice came along, which showed that in rodents uh, the D3 receptor was not linked to a potassium channel. So I don't know exactly what went wrong, but I'd actually I'd like to repeat those experiments with, with R, using RNAi. Now. But is, is the knockout definitive in that situation? I mean, knockouts are never. I mean, developmental issues and compensation. We and that's such that's why I idea. that's why I haven't uh, withdrawn the paper. <laughs> anyway, mm -hmm. people are suspicious of any since uh, RNA yeah, yeah. in general now. Yeah. And, and basically, everything that was done yeah. with it has been is it in doubt? Yeah. There were. The reasons to be suspicious of it at the time, too, it, but had to go forward with it because it, you needed some tool like that. Yeah. And, and it was the only one available at the time. Yeah. Better than nothing. Keeps us occupied while the real tool comes along. <laughs> so how come you s switched away from the all the other things you did a long time ago. So the first work you ever did was on acoustic priming, and uh, this was a phenomenon in which mice are uh, uh, subjected to a loud noise when they are young, and then when they grow up, they are now they become sensitive to loud noises, and they have uh, seizures when they get that loud noise. And uh, your uh, uh, this is when you were an undergraduate, I think you started working on this stuff, and your professor at the time, uh, Kurt Schlesinger, thought this was a model of learning because it was an early experience. An animal learned, basically, by hearing a sound, to become a, 
epileptic. Am I getting this stuff? Yeah. So yeah, exa- exactly right. I think you, I think he thought that the uh, I, I, what he thought was that the uh, the first exposure to the loud sound was kind of akin to kindling. The kind, a kindling phenomenon, where subsequent which was brand new at that time. which was brand new at the time, so a kindling phenomenon, would, which is uh, electrical repeated low-level electrical stimulation of a part of the brain over time, will gradually make that part of the brain more and more and more excitable until a week later you give the same small electrical stimulus and and it evokes like a full-fledged seizure activity in that part of the brain. And so the idea was that maybe. Um, Somewhere in the auditory, in the central auditory pathways, the exposure to loud sound was evoking a similar kind of kindling response. So that in in certain kinds of mice, um, this you you could ring a really loud a really loud bell, I mean, a bell damaged my hearing, uh, uh, and three days later ring the same bell again, and now the mice who didn't have any response to the bell the first time would now have a seizure, and um, so we did to try to understand what was going on um, to try to try to get at this. We did a selective breeding experiment. So we took um, mice that uh, after we had a rang a bell and then waited three days and then rang the bell again. We had mice that responded with the most severe type of seizures, which actually were lethal. So we would do mouth to mouth resuscitation and with a little squeeze bulb and get them back and, and get them back. We would take mice that died and mate them together. Uh, and we would take mice that had wait mice that died in they well I, I had very well we, they were lethal really seizures we resuscitated them yes they didn't they, we didn't make the dead mice and take mice that didn't that uh, that had had virtually no effect or very little effect and made them together and then there was an unselected control line very very quickly after seven generations there was almost complete divert there was this huge divergence between between these three lines of mice and. We could then start um, uh, investigating what had changed in the CNS of the mice, and at, at, right around this time, I'm now I was I had become a, a graduate student around this time. Yeah, I was going to say, are you an eight-year undergraduate? No, no, I, I had I had now become a graduate student, and I was still working on this project, and um, but we had Charlie and I had a had a professor who was uh, had a, an idea about this. Uh, this acoustic priming thing that was a little bit different than this learning. And his idea was based on uh, work, that I think, that he had done when he was a postdoc with Jasper on damage disuse supersensitivity. The idea that if you know a muscle fiber is denervated, um, it will, or some part of the brain is denervated, then one of the early responses is that that part of the brain or muscle or something becomes supersensitive to to, to inputs to transmitter again, and and so this professor thought that maybe this was going on, and that sounded like sort of a fairly good idea to me, and so I thought uh, I had it was one of the few original ideas I think I ever had was to that maybe the bell was deafening um, deafening the mice and that part, partly deafening the mice, and that these partially deafened mice. Um, we're like then cranking up the gain in someplace in the in the central auditory system, and when you rang the bell three days later, uh, the they uh, they would respond with a with a seizure. But this and, wasn't what Kirk thought. No, no, no. He was looking for a messenger yeah, RNA yeah. that was being uh, that was specific for that experience. Right, but I didn't. Want he had the idea that 
that learning was caused by the generation of specific messenger RNAs for each individual memory. And so he was uh, looking to see what... Uh, this was a while ago. I mean, they were isolated yeah. mRNA and then looking for new species of mRNA yes. to, that were associated with this learning. And right. the last thing he wanted to hear was that the sound was damaging. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and we simply bred for susceptibility to or resistance to sound induced damage. So I thought of a way to test this um, by, uh, by causing cochlear damage, hair cell damage, without ringing a bell at all um, by giving an antibiotic drug. And so I wanted to, I was going to test this. So I was going to, it was very simple. All I had to do was to look at the cochlea from these three different lines of mice, see if there was different amount of damage in the three different lines of mice, and then see if I could in, reproduce the effect of a primed mouse by inducing damage without ringing a bell at all. And I could do that with antibiotic. And so I went to my professor and said, I have a great experiment. I want to do this experiment. He said, no, we thought of this already. It's not going to work. It's too hard. You can't do it. Don't do this. Go back to doing what I told you to do. And I was really crushed and disappointed. But, but then I realized that he was going on sabbatical, about to leave for a year. And he left. He went to the Stanford Research Institute for a year. So as soon as he was out the door, uh, I learned how to, to do the cochlear dissection and, and did my first microscopy. I, was, I got tips and pointers from Charlie uh, and figured out how to you know, do this antibiotic. And by the time he came back, I figured out how the priming thing works. Of all the people in Kurt's lab, your response to his absence was the most positive. Everybody else did something while he was gone, but most of them didn't do some wonderful experiment that he'd forbidden. They were uh, mixing up Kahlua milkshakes in the lab and that sort of thing. Using the blenders that were supposed to be used to homogenize the yes. tissue to extract the messenger RNA. It was a good experience. <laughs> Okay, well, it's, uh, it's been really fun. And thanks for coming, Tep, and talking to us for a while. Uh, thanks for inviting me, and thanks for uh, allowing me to participate. This was a whole lot of fun. I'm very curious to see how this turns out, and we'll be listening to, uh, to future casts to see, see how they improve. Let's hope they will be. Yes. Okay, so long, everybody. Ha, 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 ha